Hey everybody, Tyler Smith here with uh, a uh, sort of a bonus uh, supplement exclusive uh, episode of Battleship Pretension. Um, we had an opportunity to have a very exciting and very important guest uh, on the show. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about his life and his career and what that means and all of that. So uh, without any further ado, not that there was much in the first place, uh, Hawk Koch. Hawk, how you doing? Good. Nice to see you, Tyler. And nice to see you as well. So uh, we're going to start with the the most basic question. Uh, who are you? <laughs> well, that's a very interesting question. I know. That's, I like to... Because that, uh, that connotes a... Uh, a rabbi asked me that at 50 years old. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Um, I am a Jewish man. Okay. I am a producer. Okay. I am the former president of the Motion Picture Academy. We give out the Oscars. Yeah. And I'm the former president of the Producers Guild. And for those of you who watch movies today, you'll see a little PGA next to the name mm -hmm. of a producer who actually did the work of producing a movie. All right. And I'm very proud that Mark Gordon and I, when we were co-presidents of the Guild, got that so that everybody, when you watch a movie, if there's no PGA mark next to that person, he may have negotiated a credit, but he, <laughs> he or she really did not produce the movie. The one with the little PGA mark is the one who really produced the movie. All right. So there's, so like people in the industry, when they, at this point, if they're watching a movie and they see that credit, they're like, okay, I got it. That's the person to talk to in the future. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I want to I want to say this first, and then we'll repeat it afterwards. So uh, you have written a book that is autobiographical. It is called Magic Time. Uh, it is available now. You have, people can find it on Amazon. I'll, again, I'll say it again at the end, but sure. I just wanted to say that now because yeah. it's my memoir. You never know who's yeah. going to listen all the way to the end. Yeah. So I want to say it now. Um, right. It's my memoir, and it's. Uh, it has a lot of Hollywood stories in it. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done work done over sixty movies, but it also has the spine of a relationship between a father and a son. My father also was a pretty well-known man in the industry, pretty well-loved man. Yeah, and I wanted to talk a little a little bit about that. I don't want to touch on anything. I sadly didn't get to read all of the book, mostly just like early biographical stuff, and so I don't necessarily want to touch on it too much because then. Sure. People won't read the book. So, right. uh, so I did want, but yeah, you were born into a Hollywood family. Right. Um, and you know what, first off that in itself has got to be a, an odd life, possibly even a high, a high pressure life one could say. Um, so what was it like growing up in not just Hollywood, but in a, in a film family? Well, I mean, first of all, I didn't know I was four years old sure. and I was, uh, my mother drove me up to Colorado where my dad was making a movie. He was an AD on a movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was didn't want to even leave my mom because I never saw my dad. He worked mm -hmm. six days a week, sometimes seven. And the next day when we got there, they, he drove me out to the set and I saw cowboys and Indians and mm -hmm. and oh my God, there were trucks off to the side, but who cared? And all of a sudden, some man on a horse said, hey, have you ever been on a horse before? No. Do you want to go for a horseback <laughs> ride? Yeah, at four years old. And uh, somebody picked me up and put me in front of him and drove, you know, rode around for a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. I was on a movie set the whole day. I loved every minute of it. When I got home that night, 
My father said to my mother, guess who gave little Howie? I was little Howie. <laughs> my father was big Howie. Yeah. Uh, guess who gave little Howie his first horseback ride? And my father said Clark Gable. And so I didn't know who Clark Gable was. Of course, yeah. But I mean, I was four years old. But my you mean dad, you weren't watching Mutiny on the Bounty at four yeah. years old? Uh, Scarlet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my dad made B-movies in the 50s. Those mm. are for those around. Yeah. And there was, there was always a second feature uh, at movie theaters. Yeah. And so I was always on a set. So I grew up on a movie set, mm -hmm. uh, loving the magic of being on a movie set. And then I got to go to movies. And so seeing the Ten Commandments yeah. a, on a big screen and seeing, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, mm -hmm. that was magical to me. And yeah. then there was Jack Lemmon, who in 1962 was in a movie called The Days of Wine and Roses. And before... Mm -hmm. He was played an alcoholic. Before he took a drink, he'd go magic time, and he'd take a drink. Yeah. Well, he used that for his whole life. When he was getting ready to do a scene and he heard roll camera, he'd go magic time, <laughs> and he'd focus in on what his character was supposed to be. That was his clue. He could be yeah. off laughing, having a drink, whatever, but magic time brought him back yeah. in. So I used that my whole life hmm. to to any time we were rolling camera or if I was gonna give a speech before it was magic time and it allowed me to focus. So that's where the title of the book comes from is magic time. And you know what's interesting, just you mentioned Days of Wine and Roses. It's That was a, obviously a big movie at the time, but it's always interesting to see what movies are and are not remembered. And that was a Blake Edwards movie. And yes. people have a very specific idea of who Blake Pink Edwards Panther. is. Right. Pink Panther, pure, just pure right. comedy. Yeah. That is not a funny well, movie. Well, how, how about uh, Experiment and Terror? Which I Blake didn't, Edwards. I, which I didn't see. But, oh, uh, you are Ross Martin. It I've, was a very scary movie. Yeah, it's it's just interesting that there. every once in a while there's like a director that's known almost exclusively for one thing. And then they just like, Wes Craven directed music from the heart with <laughs> with Meryl Streep as like a teacher uh, in like 1999, and then just went back to being Wes Craven. And you're like, how does... Well, that, 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 I know. think that's what was great about William Wyler. Mm -hmm. He could well, do Ben-Hur, yeah. he could do Funny Girl, Best yeah. Years of Our Lives, and The Collector. Yeah. How about putting those yeah. together? You my, wouldn't know it's the same director. One of my Robert Wise is one of my go-to's for that. That just like his, he was so, he yeah. was so reliable. He could yeah. make great movies, and yet you know he makes the day of the earth stood still, and then uh, West Side Story, West Side Story, and you're like Sound of Music, <laughs> and then goes back to make Star Wars the motion picture. What, yeah. what is, Star Trek? Star Trek. Pardon yeah. me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, oh my gosh! I'm uh, any number of our listeners would be so angry that I just did that. Um, <laughs> it was a slip of the tongue. I assure you, I know the difference. That's right. I'm glad I knew. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one thing, the idea of growing up in this, as to even use your own words, like this magical uh, environment. Some people, and then still being able to retain for yourself the the magic of watching movies and letting yourself get pulled into them. Uh, the number of people that have asked me, and I'm not even in film, uh, like, are you able to still let yourself enjoy it? Being a critic, being a, a, a teacher and all that kind of thing, or do you just analyze it the whole time? And, and I was like, I count myself as extremely lucky that I'm still able to let myself get lost in a movie. Uh, and within people working within the industry, I know, I know some people that actually aren't able 
to let that happen. No, I'm able to do it if it's a good movie. Well, sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I can get lost. I'm still 14 and loving whatever or 18 and still loving uh, English and French cinema when I was growing up yeah. or, or seeing Milos Forman's, you know, Loves of a Blonde, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But when a, when a movie has a giant hole in it and you go, oh, come on. Yeah. It takes me out of it. But- I'm I'm willing to to let go. Yeah, and you know what? In the spirit of that, you and I were having a conversation beforehand, mm-hmm. and the time has come to go public. Okay. I myself, and neither did you. I did not go crazy for the Irishman. Um, not that now. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm free to say that kind of thing. Are you like being being in film? Can you be as free with your, uh, with your, okay. Why not? Yeah, no, I'm, I I guess when you're the former president of the Academy, you can say what you want. You know, somebody might say, you know, there's a lot of people who feel the same way I do. I've been talking to a lot of people, you know, just, it's more, uh, listen, Marty Scorsese is a great filmmaker. Not a question. Yeah. De Niro, Pesci, uh, Pacino, they're all great actors. But I felt, I've seen it before. I've seen, I've seen Scorsese do this before. Yeah. So the hoopla of, oh, wow, look at this one. For me, it was it was tough because I, I found a lot of other movies this year that I was much more involved with that yeah. uh, original movies. I didn't feel this was original. I feel like it was some another yeah. Scorsese, uh, you know. Yeah. And I'm and now, how do me, you feel? Come okay, on. Yeah. All right. Uh yeah, uh, there's a lot that I appreciate, a lot that I admire, and some things that I found genuinely engaging. But as a whole thing, it's weird. At three and a half hours, I still had a lot of questions. Like, I feel like there are important story and character elements that aren't there. Like, how on earth does this guy become not just a, a trusted associate, but an actual friend to Jimmy Hoffa? We don't actually see that really evolve. Well, you I know, know. Oh, something else, too. There's been a lot of discussion in the last few years about someone playing a different ethnicity. Sure. Excuse me. It's called The Irishman. Yeah. Is there a more Italian actor than Robert De Niro? Yeah, but he's he, playing Jimmy Hoffa. Um, he's not playing Jimmy. No, Hoffa. and I'm saying I'm saying the only other, the only maybe the only more Italian actor is already there playing another non-Italian character. And yeah, and there's yes, and there's somebody else. So. My question is, how come there wasn't any? I mean, my God, Scarlett Johansson was, I mean, taken apart. <laughs> yeah. Right? Last oh, yeah. year, wasn't it? Right? Uh, last year or the year before. I don't remember I mean, exactly. I mean, taken yeah. apart for playing someone other than who she is. Nobody said a word about Pacino or De Niro. Well, because it's, uh, first off, I think the performances are, are fine. They're engaging. And they're also like Hollywood royalty, as is Scorsese. And I think people... You know, to my knowledge, there probably aren't that many Irish-born actors that are like, hey, uh, what oh, about I me? I think there's some great Irish-born I, actors. I think there are, but I just don't, th- I, I can't see them putting up much of a much of a fuss. Even though, when I think of it, it's like the De Niro character, don't get me wrong, I still think like the screenplay has issues, but I feel like an Ed Harris could have played that part just wonderfully, Yeah, you know, yeah. and been more... Irish. More Irish, <laughs> you know? Uh, but yeah, and so... Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, there are times, like, I 
I really try to let myself like a movie as much as I can. And as a result, there are movies that I wind up liking that other people like, how on earth could you possibly like that? It's like, I just, cause I do. But if a movie, like if I find myself having a lot of questions throughout that aren't necessarily questions that I think I'm supposed to be asking after a while, it's like they start to mount up and suddenly, like you mentioned, it's just like, all right, I'm, I can't lose myself in this. And the Irishman is a movie I felt like I couldn't lose myself in by the way. Anybody talk to the pilot of that plane that took him there? <laughs> yeah. And what about his son? Yeah. Hoffa's kid mm-hmm. who saw him get out of the car and go into that, you know? Yeah, it's, and I don't know, because I know it's based on sort of a, a memoir and, and nobody knows if how much he was lying and all that. Um, I myself am a... F- I, Anytime you do anything Hoffa related, including the Danny DeVito movie Hoffa, which I uh, watched many times actually when I was younger, um, there's going to be speculation there about that last moment. Okay, so you watched Hoffa many times when you were younger. Are you going to watch this movie again? I might watch it once more to just to give myself a chance to see what other people are seeing because I've I've read reviews and all that, and I'm like, and I get where a lot of the other critics are coming from. I just can't turn it on for myself. And so like, I might give it once more, but you know, seeing Nicholson, seeing Nicholson give, uh, do David Mamet dialogue is a pleasure. I I adore it. Uh, Even though that film was not very well received at the Mm -hmm. time, but anyway, okay. Sorry about that. That's okay. Uh, So, uh, so you're raised in Hollywood. Uh, Dad's an assistant director. Starts as an assistant Starts as, yeah. And then it moves up uh, to he starts uh, producing and directing B movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he's he he directs and produces some TV shows. Yeah, uh, one was called Surfside Six, which was actually, <laughs> if you think of Michael Mann's uh, sure Miami Vice, yeah, that was Surfside Six of you know twenty years before. Uh, and then on the same day or same week, he was asked by Quinn Martin. To be his partner, Quinn Martin was a big producer in the early '60s. The Fugitive, The Untouchables, mm. um, not The Untouchables, The Fugitive, The FBI. Right. Uh, it was a huge thing, and so my father was interested in that. And then at the same time, he was asked to run Frank Sinatra's movie company, hmm. and so he chose. Well, there's no pressure there. Yes, <laughs> but he chose to be Sinatra's uh, guy, mm-hmm. and so, uh, and then from there. Uh, after running Sinatra's company for a few years, he was asked to be head of Paramount Studios, mm-hmm. and then he went by way of all param- of all production heads. <laughs> he got a producer deal, and then he yeah. went out and produced some damn good movies. And where in this process did you decide that you wanted to be a part of this business? Oh, I think as a kid, I okay. I fell in love with being on a set. I loved. I love the grips, the electricians, the prop men, the cinematographers, the production designers, everybody. It was a family mm-hmm. that I love being around. And they all, I was Howard W. Koch Jr. So <laughs> I, I was always, you know, told by everybody how proud you should be because your dad's the most wonderful man. Hmm. Do you know what he's done for me or my cousin or my brother or my wife or whatever? Yeah. You must be so proud. Say hi to him for me. Mm. So I never had my own identity. Right. But I did on a movie set. Sure. I was a guy on a movie set who knew, and I learned because I worked 
with the grips, with the costumers, with the sound guys, with the camera guys. No matter what I was doing, I was, I, 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 I had a, you know, 18 year education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I loved it. I yeah. love being on a movie set. Did you have, like, when you when you first are like, okay, this is a this is a thing I'm absolutely gonna do. Uh, did you did you want to get into producing? Did you want to get into directing, writing, or you just wanted to be a part of it somehow? Uh, I somehow? loved organizing. Okay, and I think everybody should do what they do best. Yeah, and I was really a good organizer, uh, even to the point where uh, my JV basketball coach in high school mm-hmm. hit me over the head and said, what do you think you are, coach? So they called me Coach Koch for a while. But, uh, and I made movies in, in high school sure. that, that went well. Mm-hmm. And then when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, uh, I left UCLA. Hmm. And not only did I leave, the, leave college, but I left the United States. Hmm. And I got a job working in England for a booking agent who booked uh, American rock acts into England in the in 1964, mm-hmm. and uh, I really loved it. And he he owned the Dave Clark Five, which were as big as the Beatles in 1964. Mm-hmm. And you might have seen the movie Catch Me If You Can, yes. the original. Yeah. Yes, and um, we came back to the United States and we did 48 cities in 52 days. And I worked with Roy Orbison in Alabama and I worked with Chuck Berry in (laughs) St. Louis. And I mean, it was fabulous. But when I got back, I realized as much as I loved the music industry, I really loved making movies. And I felt like I knew what movies were. And I didn't go back to college. And by the time I got back from that tour, my dad had become head of Paramount. So I did what anybody would do. I asked my dad if I could work on a film. Right. And uh, he helped get me a job on, on actually the third film I worked on, the first two. Now, if you know these two, man, you are a cinephile, okay? Okay. They were directed by William Bodine Sr. Don't know if you know name the name. Name sounds familiar, but uh, that's all I got. Billy the Kid versus Dracula and Jesse James meets Frankenstein's <laughs> okay, daughter. Yes, there we go. Those are the first. They each took five days to make. Yeah. So they, they, they're not on your shelf, I'll bet, okay? But then <laughs> I got- They're on my Christmas list, though. Right. But uh, my father could talk to you mm-hmm. if you came in and asked him for four hours. Right. And you'd come out and say, oh, my God, he's the most wonderful man. He couldn't talk to his son. Yeah. And so my, my trajectory was to try and be seen- by him and by other people with the same name, mm-hmm. with being Howard W. Koch Jr. Yeah. And I lived with that till I was 50 years old, even though by the time I was 50, I had produced many movies. I'd been assistant director on some of the great, I think, greatest movies, Chinatown, yeah. The Way We Were, Rosemary's Baby, Marathon Man. Yeah. I mean, you know, Heaven Can Wait, I mean, you know. Some pretty good movies. Yeah. But until... With a pretty forceful producer behind them there as well. Uh, in Robert, many cases, Robert Evans. Uh, oh, yeah. Big Bob. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, we just lost him, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah he, was, he was quite unique. Yeah. And you know what's what's interesting? Um, so something I don't know that if we I answered your question. By that's way. that's fine. I kind of forget the I kind of forget the questions that I ask because I am only I'm much more interested in where the answer goes eventually <laughs> than the initial one. Um, it kind of makes me not the best interviewer. But the point is, uh, when so one thing that we do on this show 
uh, every 10 episodes is we'll do a profile of a specific artist. Um, and in the last couple of years, it has kind of turned into a sort of in memoriam of like an artist that has passed away recently. Mm-hmm. And we were going to do Robert Evans. And then we realized that like, well, wait a second. You like, you know what a composer does, you know what a director does, you know what an actor does. How does one, you know, pay tribute to a producer aside? And part of me just thought like, well, the producer is the movie. I mean, don't get me wrong, the director makes the movie, uh, directs the movie, but the producer is the movie. Like that's why there's no best there's no best producer at the Oscars. There's best picture and the producer's the one that, that Gets receives that award, it. Yes. And so I was thinking like, maybe we just talk about his movies and that in itself is the tribute to him, but it did lead. And this kind of dovetailed with me talking with, um, uh, the publicist for this book, because I realized that even like big movie fans don't totally understand what a producer does. Mm-hmm. I, oh gosh, at this point, yeah, okay, like 11 years ago, I interned for a couple of producers, and so I was able to kind of listen in and see what they what they did, but it's not like I was there for every meeting or anything right. like that, um, and so I realize this is a very big question, but I am, I'm curious, and I, and I would like to, and I think the, the listeners would be as well. What does a produce? What does producing mean? You said organizing. That's okay, a big well, part of let's, it. Let's start with this. Let's start with okay. Go to Producers Guild of America mm-hmm. website and pull up uh, credits. Mm-hmm. There is a list of at the moment I think around thirty-seven criteria for what a producer does. Yeah, the producer in most cases, is the one who read a script, read a newspaper article, read a book, walked down the street and went, oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Maybe we can make a movie out of it. Um, David Brown, a great producer who, mm. Zanuck Brown, yeah. right? The Sting, Jaws, yeah. um, The Verdict. David Brown said, somebody asked him, you know, what? Well, what movies, you know, what, 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 what makes you decide what, as a producer, what movie you want to make? And he said, they're called moving pictures, hmm. yeah. something that moves me. So as a producer, I try, and I think most producers try to say, oh, this moves me as a story. It might make me scared. It might make right. me laugh. It might make me dramatic. But we, as a producer, we find the material. Then once we have that piece of material, it could be, it could be a, one idea, yeah. or it could be a full book. Then we got to go and find someone to write the screenplay, someone to finance the writing of the screenplay. Could be a studio, could be an independent sure. financer, could be wherever you you have a brick wall in front of you and you hit your head 999 times and all of a sudden one time it goes through and ah, there's somebody who's going to put up the money to get it written. Then you work on that screenplay for a very long time until you feel that it's good enough to attract a director, attract an actor, an actress. Then you, you're the organizer. You are the person who says, I am not going to let this go. I'm going to find a way to get this made. 
you you like the script, the studio likes the script, you go out to 10 directors who all say, no, sorry, I'm doing my own thing, thanks. No. You finally, hopefully, get a director that has the same vision you do. So therefore, that studio, that director, and that producer all have the same vision so you can move forward. Sometimes a producer and a director don't have the same vision. My thing is don't hire that director. Right. Okay. But so now you have, and, and by the way, the studio says to you, uh, now how much do you think this movie will cost? And you better have a good idea. Yeah. So you say, oh, it's going to cost, I think it's going to cost 40. And if we shoot it in this, in New Mexico with the rebate, you'll be able to have the net will be 33 or something or whatever it is. And you better have a pretty good sense of what a movie's going to cost. Then you get the script, you get the director, you get a couple of actors, and right away they go, all right, go ahead, look for locations, see if the budget comes out to where it's going to be, uh, and hire yourself a production designer, someone who's going to art direct the movie with you, Yeah. and hire a casting person to, to cast the rest of the roles, and uh, then you move forward in what we call pre-production. You schedule it, you budget it, and now the budget comes in at $45 million. You got to go back to the studio or the financer and say, hey, it's, it's five more than I thought. Yeah. And they either say, well, cut something out because you said 40 and that's what it is, or, or we'll do it for, for 45, or no, this is only worth 30. So figure <laughs> yeah. out how to make it for 30 or for $3 million. Yeah. Okay, how can we so shoot you, this thing in five days? You go, you go through all of that in pre-production, and then you're ready to shoot the movie. Now, me, because I'm what I call old school, I actually am there. I'm the line producer yeah. and the creative producer. Hmm. Because Does that put, do you feel like that puts pressure on directors? Or I guess by that time, you've, you've worked with the director enough that they... Honestly, no, it doesn't put pressure on them. The ones that are really good directors love an experienced producer around. Sure, sure. The ones who don't, Wants you gone because yeah. they don't want to be exposed. <laughs> okay. Yes, that uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So now during shooting, I'm still talking about what a producer. Yeah, does. yeah. A producer is a psychiatrist, a social worker. Uh, he's he's the he's the coach. He's you know the the actor has a problem. He had a fight with his wife. You know. Uh, the sound man's uh, got the flu. Um, what, whatever is going on, you're there to start, stop the fires before they start, mm -hmm. or if there is a fire, put it out and keep going. As you'll see in my book, Magic Time, mm -hmm. there are quite a few of those stories. One, yeah. a, a great Faye Dunaway, Roman Polanski story, which I'm not gonna tell, <laughs> yeah. but, but so now all the way through shooting, you are there to do that and to watch every day's work and make sure that what you thought this movie was going to be are the actors getting the performance you, you wanted. People love to change lines and you go, well, wait a minute, if you do this here, it's going to create a problem over in this scene. Yeah. And I like every day before I go to the set to say, okay, why is the scene that we're going to shoot today necessary for the movie? And then... Excuse me. I want to make sure that what we're getting that day is the reason why this scene is going to be in the movie. How do you? Because yeah, uh, still going. And I, I know we're still okay. Yeah. But the idea of 
to come back to this word vision, um, mm-hmm. that like it literally for the producer, because a lot, so many projects start, like just begin with the producer. Like, again, you say they encounter material. They're like, I think something or an idea from that moment to the release of the film. I mean, it's, it's years. It can be years, yeah, you know, and it has been. <laughs> and how do you keep, how do you keep the vision or even just the passion for the vision? How do you keep that going when you get, when you're in the weeds and you're in the minutia of, of filmmaking? Because when you go to the theater on opening night yeah, and they're laughing hysterically or they're coming out going, Oh my God, I love that. Yeah. Because you know, that's why does a writer write a book? Yeah. Why does a painter take forever to paint his painting. Yeah. It's the creative process. And if you love it, if you don't love it, then you know, better go find something else to do. Yeah. Because it is. It's hard work. It's th- generally thankless because in today's world, the director, everybody thinks the director's God. Yeah. And by the way, the director has a huge part. Sure. But it's not the only part. I'm a sports fan, and I don't know if anybody of your <laughs> listeners are sports fans. Some of them probably. I haven't met yeah, them, but well, sure. Well, but, you know, uh, you need all nine players on a baseball team yeah. to be working together. You can't do a double play if the if the second baseman's not thinking, yeah. right? So you have to you have to create this <clears throat> this this pie yeah. with every piece is there, and and it it takes it takes a village. So I interrupted the process. Yes, I apologize. Okay, so now we're we're finished shooting. Yeah, so we're in post. Now. We're in post, and now the editor, who I call the second writer, sure. Because the editor now, the director and producer, everybody goes away for a few weeks. We're exhausted. And the editor puts together what we call his assemblage. Yeah. And then the director gets to look at it first. I don't get generally. And I'm good friends with the director. Then we'll both look at the assemblage. Mm -hmm. And we'll look and go, oy vey. Yeah. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Or, wow. Yeah. And here's what works, here's what doesn't work, and you start the process of editing the film to get it to the place that that film's going to work. And sometimes it takes, you think you're going one route, and it takes a, it takes a, a, a ride a different way. But as a producer, while that's going on, you're also dealing with the marketing, the right. publicity, when you're going to open how you're going to open the movie. You're going to open it wide. You're going to open it in two theaters. Discussing with the studio again or the financer. Hopefully you had distribution. Yeah. (laughs) You know, sometimes it's an independent and you're hoping to get it to Sundance or to Toronto or to Telluride, to a film festival. So it's all, you are, you're on top of everything all the way through till the movie is released in Albania. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's so, I mean, you know, you've been doing this for a while now. And so like, yeah. (laughs) So the idea of, you mentioned the idea of the, the rollout, the marketing, I mean, you know, since you've started this, the internet came along, uh, there were big blockbusters before, but now, you know, if a movie doesn't even count as a blockbuster unless it has a 200, $250 million budget, like I have to assume that the the rollout and just the 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 
the idea of getting a movie made, especially with a studio, I have to assume it is night and day now from what it was. Or yeah. is it still kind of the principle is basically the well, same? Well, the principle is the same, but it's night and day. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, there are very few people who love film who are running the places. <laughs> so therefore, it's a bottom line business. Yeah. In the old days... Uh, let's take uh, Robert Evans. Sure. <laughs> but uh, let's say Paramount was going to do 20 movies. Well, maybe 12 of them made absolutely made monetary sense. Yeah. You know, this is a this is that kind of movie. Yeah, that's the kind of movie we can make. But then eight of them were Bob's gut mm -hmm. and said, you know what? I'm going to make The Godfather. Yeah. I'm going to make The Conversation. I'm going to make Love Story. I'm going to make Rosemary's Baby. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make Marathon Man, okay? Yeah. And they'll also make Once Is Not Enough, and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and they'll and they'll make The Odd Couple, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which my dad produced, you know, uh, yeah. th they'll make those movies too because that, you know, Neil Simon, you know, all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. But there aren't that many today, and kind of this year, I'm kind of thrilled because if you look, there's an awful lot of original movies that are doing well this year, original <laughs> concepts, yeah. which I'm very happy about. Which have a, it's frustrating. Like when you talk, if you talk about a movie that that is for adults, people assume they mean that you mean content. It's like no, there are just movies that have an adult sensibility. Like there's nothing offensive, quote unquote offensive, in Ford v Ferrari, but it's a movie made with more of an adult sensibility. Um, you know, I mean, aside, I'm sure there are five year olds that would that maybe love racing. Oh. And that, that, yeah, um, and no, yeah, like. It's usually around, uh, I mean, get, we're into December now, but it's usually around October that I've been, I've seen all the, all the blockbusters, I'm feeling exhausted. And then of course we get to Oscar time and I feel re-energized because like, oh yes, okay, now we have movies that are meant for, that are smaller in budget. Not that I'm opposed to big budget movies, but like they're just, they have a different sensibility, one that is a bit less for lack of a better term, They're moving corporate. pictures. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I use that a lot. Well, yeah. I mean, I've seen uh, being a big Jaws fan as I am. Uh, I've seen a lot of interviews with Zanuck uh, and Brown, and uh, yeah, they both speak very eloquently and very passionately and just very intelligently about movies. And it just speaks to this idea that I remember many, many years ago. I watched The Bad and the Beautiful with uh, Kirk, Kirk Douglas, yeah. and he's a producer. And I remember that w I was young enough that that, that might have been that or like Wag the Dog was like my first exposure to what a producer could be as represented by movies. And in Bad and the Beautiful, one of the things that I really remember is that he tries to direct and like can't do it. And I remember even when I was younger thinking that feels like a dig at producers <laughs> because uh, it's like based on what these guys as uh, Anakin Brown are talking about, like a producer has to have a creative vision and an, and a corporate mindset in order to make this thing happen at all. But I think so many people look at producers as purely corporate, but Not of course, it, but it has to be the other thing too all, as well. Yeah. Um, you're right. And so, uh, I will say that one of my, when you're talking about like having a producer having to be like a therapist and all that kind of thing and run all this stuff, um, the movie Hail Caesar, uh, which I adore, um, and that one where 
uh, Josh Brolin plays this producer and he just has to do so many different types of things. Um, True. Would you say that Tom Cruise in uh, not Pineapple Express? Well, remember, remember who was the guy? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. What um, movie was that? Uh, Tropic Thunder. Tropic Thunder. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah, <laughs> they, they they don't give us a lot of respect. Right. Uh, State and Maine. David Paymer pays uh, plays the producer right. there, right. and there is there tends to be. In pretty much all the movies that I just mentioned, a certain ruthlessness yeah. to producers. Do you find that's a, a, a trait you have to possess? I don't possess it. Okay. Um, there are producers who do possess sure. it, and they probably are doing better. Well, they're not doing better because mm-hmm. I'm really happy with my life and what I've done in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so mine has never been, not that I have a lot of money, but it was never about money. Right. It was about doing something that I loved. And I'm still doing what I love. Yeah. So, um, but there are those out there that are ruthless and they'll do anything to, uh, to get ahead. But I think, uh, you know, look what's happening in our government. We have a few ruthless people there too. <laughs> a handful. Um, so, um, I've got, uh, sort of a, 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 a short filmography, not everything, because okay. you've done a lot of work. Um, I tried to keep it to the stuff that I have seen, although some of it is not stuff I've seen recently. Not I haven't, I haven't seen versus Dracula. Not that one. I'm sorry. Uh, like I haven't seen Wayne's World in a long time, but mm-hmm. um, but like there are movies like Virtuosity, which I saw when I was uh, in high school, and all you seem to be rolling your eyes already. Uh, it was a tough shoot. Okay. Uh, it was Russell Crowe's first movie here in uh, right. the, the States. He had done Chopper in Australia, which was phenomenal. You never saw Chopper. Romper Stomper? Chopper's Eric Bana. Oh, sorry. R- Romper there Stomper. There we go. Sorry. You're right. Well, yeah. now I, we, we each there got we go. one now. Uh, Romper Stomper, right. Um, Similar sensibilities, yes, but yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and it was, uh, let's just say... Th- I did it as a favor for a friend of mine. Okay. And I didn't really understand it. Sure. <laughs> and I think that probably a lot of people didn't understand yeah. it. Uh, but there were people who sold the studio a bill of goods on that one. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, that was, it's, it's, it's always so interesting for me because I was, I was probably like 14, I think, when the film came out. And I mean, when you think about the concept, it's, it's kind of dumb in many ways, but for a 14 year old, Oh, it's amazing. Like we took the elements of all these different killers and made the perfect killer. And you know, as a kid, I'm just like, I'm like, Oh, fuck. Yeah. That looks great. Uh, and then you get older and you're like, yeah, this movie is notable because of Russell Crowe and it being his first American film. And then like, I think a year or two later he was in uh, LA confidential. And, um, but yeah. And so it's always interesting to hear like the, the, this movie that was not necessarily seminal for me, but I remember it. And for you, it was like, it's a favor. I I don't really like it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can you mention something I did like? Well, I was going to ask like of, of all the films that you've produced, which one would you say is, I would say favorite or proudest. They might be exactly the same, but maybe not. It's hard to, a lot of them are, are favorites of mine. Yeah. I really liked Primal Fear. Yeah. And I liked the fact that we discovered Edward Norton. Yeah. That no, it was his first movie. Mm. Uh, he's still around. Motherless Brooklyn, he's terrific. In. I still haven't seen it. Oh, boy. And I know he directed it. Too. Yes, he directed yeah. it. I, I did a movie he directed called Keeping the Faith with That's right. Edward. But 
uh, a lot of times I, I've made movies based on books and the authors, oh, I don't like that movie, you know? Yeah. And people who see, who, who read a book and then go see a movie have problems with the movie because everybody, when you read a book, have your own impression of what it's supposed to be. Right. Whereas William Deal, the writer of the book Primal Fear, mm-hmm actually told us that he thought it was great, yeah. that he loved it. And the people who who had read the book loved it. Uh, it was, it was I, I worked with a director who we ended up doing three or four movies after that together, Greg Hoblet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edward Norton became a good friend and, and Bitterman did a great job on the mm-hmm. screenplay. And uh, Michael Chapman was a fabulous production designer. Janine mm-hmm. Oppenwall, I mean, a cinematographer, Janine Oppenwall, production designer. Yeah. Um, and we made the movie we wanted to make. Gary Lucchese was my partner. It was his, he started the whole thing on, yeah. on that one. Um, so that that one I'm really proud of. And it came, It the movie I wanted to see came out. Yeah. The other one, um, <clears throat> well, everybody loves Wayne's World. Um, I don't know if you do, but I you're not it, a Wayne's World fan. I saw it when I was a kid. I yeah. didn't really understand it, but that's, I think I was maybe just too young to yeah. get it. I think well, I'd you're, probably you're, like you're it You're in the minority, now. I got to oh, tell I, you. Believe me, I know. <laughs> but uh, Wayne's World was, it was really fun to watch. And my oldest son was the key set PA on it. Oh, nice. He loved it. He got it. I actually got a call. I was making a film in Texas and I got a call from the studio from Paramount saying, hey, you know, we want like a Hollywood producer to produce this movie with Lauren Michaels. Would you mind flying home uh, for a day, meet with Lauren, and then get back to your to the movie you're doing? And, and Lauren and I hit it off, and so I was going to produce with him. Uh, but before I met Lauren, I called my three kids who were 22, 19, and probably 11 mm-hmm. or 12, and I said, so what do you guys think of Wayne's World? Oh, Dad, you got to make this one. Are you kidding? This is the funniest. We can't wait. <laughs> on and on and on. Yeah. And all the way through the movie, all three of them went, you know, the, well, one was working on the set. One right. was, <clears throat> there's a funny story if I can. Can I tell a story? By all means. There's a scene uh, in the movie where Robert Patrick, who played the Terminate, the cop in <laughs> yes, Terminator 2. that's two. right. Okay, you know who that is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the pacer has been stopped uh, on a street mm-hmm. and Patrick walks up, you know, stiffly like the guy comes up and it, that was a Friday night and I brought my 12-year-old son, Robbie, mm. who's now an entertainment attorney, yeah. uh, to uh, to the set because it was Friday night and he's going to watch us shoot and everything. Sure. He's standing next to the <laughs> camera with me and Penelope Spheris, the, the uh, director. And he walks up, the, Patrick walks up to the car and says, do you know you were speeding? Mm-hmm. And Robbie, my 12-year-old, blurts out very loudly, well, that's not funny. <laughs> oh, my God. Bring your kid to the set, right? So Mike Myers leaned out of the car and said, why, Robbie? What, what isn't funny? He said, well, in Terminator 2, he, he didn't say you were speeding. He had the, a picture of a Polaroid and said, have you seen this boy? Because the, the, yeah, the yeah. cop kept looking for the boy, right? Yeah. So everybody went, hey, Robbie's right. So they took a Polaroid picture of Robbie. Oh, that's And funny. Robbie is in the movie. When they say, have you seen this boy? It's Robbie's Polaroid picture. And he is so proud of that. And by the way, every time it, when we we'd go to the movies, 
huge laughs. Oh, and, sure. And Robbie would always go, see, Dad, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, and that's, that's, a, that's a story in the book, by the way. And that's, that is very much the kind of thing uh, that works for comedy, like that kind of, yeah. like, oh, this thing isn't getting the laugh. Thank God there was a kid around. Uh, like, this thing isn't getting a laugh. What can we change at the last minute to get right. a laugh? Because right. um, the laugh for many comedies is like, that's the most important thing, maybe more so well, than I like think script I, coherence. I learned a lot from uh, Gary Marshall. I did a movie with Gary sure. called Nothing in Common mm -hmm. with Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason. Jackie Gleason, yeah. And Gary would do, in every scene, he'd do like eight jokes where you knew you only had room for one or two. Yeah. But then he'd go in the cutting room and then he'd put it up and show, we'd have a screening with an audience and he'd, he'd have four of those jokes in there. Mm -hmm. And then the next night, he'd have the other four jokes. Yeah. And then the third night, he'd do the best three jokes to see. Yeah. And then, then we knew which jokes were working and which weren't. Well, and he's somebody, it's interesting, like Gary Marshall, I, the movies that he made, I didn't necessarily love. But as a performer himself, I always, I always liked him. Like, I remember on Murphy Brown uh, enjoying him. And then, like, in... in, in uh, what about the movies one with Albert Brooks when he played the, uh, he played the head of the casino? Which one is that? Albert Brooks and Julie Haggerty, and they're going... Oh, across. is it Lost in America? Lost yeah, in yeah, America. absolutely. Of course. You remember he played the... He, I remember the... Yeah. And Albert lost all his money, and he went yeah. to the head, and Gary played the, the yeah. head of the casino. And is <laughs> comedically unsympathetic. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> Which I he guess, said, can I have some of my money back? I mean, yeah. you know, I, 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 yeah. I have nothing. <laughs> yeah. That's that's right. I forgot. I love that hey, movie. My, fa one my parents for me. love that movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um I can't be expected to remember everything. Um, so one thing uh, we, we should like look, look towards um, wrapping up. And of course, sure. there are a billion stories. And uh, listeners, that's why you need to get the book Magic Time available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, that kind of thing. I was curious. So for a short time, you were the president of the Academy yeah. of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Right. We give out the Oscar. Yeah. Um, how does that happen? And what does that entail? To uh, you know, but the president you got, you got a few hours. Well, it's uh, if you how can, does it happen? If you can, if you I can was, limit it to four minutes, that'd be I, great. I was on. I always was around. My father was president of the academy. Oh, okay. In the nineteen seventies, uh, I'm the only second generation president of the academy. I'm very mm -hmm. proud of that. But in the nineteen eighties, once I got into the academy, I volunteered. I was on committees, lots of committees. Uh, I always wanted to be a governor. There are three governors from every branch of movie making. Producers, writers, directors, actors, sound, uh, uh, cinematographers, uh, uh, costume designers, mm -hmm. casting directors. Everybody has a branch and there's three of each. And so I always wanted to be a producer governor and I never got there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a whole process, which I won't go through. Yeah. And in 2004... I finally got elected to be one of the governors. And as you can hear from me, I'm snowshoes. I, I tell it like I feel. Mm -hmm. I, I don't. And I was elected treasurer and then vice president and then first vice president. And uh, there was a moment uh, where I thought, wow, after three terms, consecutive terms, they're three-year terms, so nine years the most mm -hmm. you can serve, and then, you, then you're termed out. I only had one year left, and I thought, wow could I be president, you know? And 
I talked to several of my friends and uh, a great friend of mine, Phil Alden Robinson, who, hmm. you know, wrote and directed Field of Dreams yeah. along with a lot of other great stuff. He was a vice president, and I asked Phil, I said, what do you think? And he said, yeah, he said, I'd be happy to nominate you. And I got nominated, and I won on the first ballot. And I was like, wow. And A, to be seen by my peers was huge. To be, in 1989, my dad won the Gene Herschel Oscar. It's the humanitarian Oscar. And while he was on stage, he was talking about each one of, uh, of his children and his grandchildren and his wife, et cetera. And he said, and one day he hoped that I would be on that stage. And it kind of took me by surprise that mm-hmm. he said that. And I thought that night when I got to be president that I was going to be on that Oscar stage yeah. at some point soon. And uh, I, f- I was really proud. And I knew I really had an agenda. I knew what I felt needed to be done to the Academy. I started. I really did start a lot of the diversity discussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got the museum going, which will be sure. out next year. Uh, certain branches got their own branch. Certain mm-hmm. uh, crafts got their own branch. Um, I had the first uh, general membership meeting. We had never had a general membership meeting where, hmm. where everybody could have a chance to talk about what they feel about the academy. No. So there was a lot of things I did. Digital voting. Yeah. Everybody getting to vote on every uh, award, so I mean, I, I got a lot done yeah. in that first year, and and I loved it. What? Uh, so, out of curiosity, was that less than four minutes. Yeah, uh, I, I was joking about okay. the time. It's fine. okay. Um, what? So, sorry, I have a number of questions, and I'm trying to think what they. Okay, there's been a lot of conversation the last few years about like the ratings of the Oscars and that sort of thing. Um, I assume that is the type of thing that the president thinks about, not sure. that he's, he or she is solely responsible for it, but I'm sure that's a big part of it. It's like, how do we, how do we make the Oscars vibrant as, again and all as, that? As, as important as they used to be. Yeah. Well, the problem, one of the problems with the internet and mm-hmm. with Inside Edition and Entertainment Tonight, in the old days, you only saw Cary Grant or Audrey Hepburn or Kirk Douglas or... Burt Lancaster or yeah. or Deborah Carr, whoever it was, when they were on the Oscars. Yeah. Today, you see them, you see our stars every yeah, minute. Everywhere. And they're brought down to a level that they're no different than the rest of us. Yeah. There's no... They're playing goofy games on late night shows and all yeah, that. Yeah. I, so it's not... The, the same thing with our politicians. Mm-hmm. The same thing with everything else in life yeah. is so exposed that there is no chemistry. There's none of that, wow, I wonder what that person's like. Yeah. Well, we already know what Charlie Sheen's like, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. I'm, you know. There's not a lot of mystique anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think it's a very hard job. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we hope for at times is a are movies that are nominated that are not only movies that the critics and let's say adult audience like, mm-hmm. but are huge successes at the box office. Yeah. Well, the biggest one we've had in the last 30 years was the year that the Titanic won everything. Oh, sure. Because everybody wanted to see Titanic win. Yeah. Last year, uh, we had a little uptick because there were there was Wonder Woman and there was... Uh, um, oh, Black Panther was, Black uh, Pan- was a big one. Sorry, yeah. Black Panther. Yeah, yeah. And so there were all these other movies that 
that the audience could get involved yeah. with. They weren't they weren't as interested in Moonlight, <laughs> yeah. You know, or or, or so so. Um, you hope as a, as the president that some of those movies. That's one of the reasons yeah. why we moved from five to up to ten movies to be right. nominated because you wanted. I remember one year years ago when. Blindside was nominated. Mm-hmm. Remember the Blindside? I do. Anna? I didn't care for it, but that's me. Well, you may not have, but it did very the, well. The South, yeah, in the South, our numbers of people watching the Oscars because the Blindside was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, yeah, went up like fifty percent. So there's nothing. You know what? You're helpless yeah. if you get a good host. If you get a good host who happens to be hot at the moment, yeah, you know everybody wants to see him or her. Yeah, you know you get a movie that everybody wants to know about. There's a song. I mean, I'm sorry, but the moment of of uh, um, uh, Lady Gaga, uh, you know, and, yeah. and 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 him singing that song. Listen, when when I was president, man, I had Adele. And yeah. then I had Barbara Streisand singing The Way We Were during, yeah. over the In Memoriam. Man, we, we had, I think, almost 42 million people watching the yeah. year that I was there. You know, so you, luck has something to do with it also. And I, it, it, would, it would appear it's this idea. It's like if, if the mystique is gone, then like what can the Oscars provide that you can't find somewhere else? And the idea of like these two stars, big stars of a big movie doing this very intimate thing yeah it's like yeah you can't really find that and elsewhere by the way what a great job directing and producing yeah that because they shot from backstage yeah. towards the audience yeah it was really really well done yeah it's it's something that like i'm i'm a big fan of the oscars i've watched them ever since i was a little kid oh, you have cats and That's to, uh, why I'm itching. i was curious That's uh really and i was like oh, i should have gotten a mcclariton um but uh but yeah, and so it's been interesting to see the the awards change over time, and to hear any kind of uh, uh, backstage, you know, uh, you have to get perspective. Lucky. Yeah, you got to get lucky. Yeah, something happens on the Oscars. Everybody wants, to, you know, when Beatty and 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 uh, Faye did the wrong uh, thing next year. Everybody wants to see what's going to happen next that, year. That thing. I mean. Were you there, uh, like oh, in in the building? At the, I was in the building. Yeah, like I have <laughs> I to assume it was just building. it was just chaos uh, well, in the moment. Can't, you just, but you know what? People are human. People yeah. make mistakes. Some people make more than one mistake. Sure. <laughs> and it wouldn't it be nice if they even once said that they made a mistake? But yeah. There are people in our world today who are in their minds perfect. And I remember. The next year, when they brought them back to to present, right. I thought that is a classy move. Yeah. I love it. It's like an opportunity to redeem themselves because they didn't necessarily do anything right. wrong. There was like a, a series of mistakes that led to that. Right. And it's just so crazy that it happened for the biggest award. It, it didn't happen. Don't get me wrong. No offense to anybody who's a sound engineer out there, but like it didn't happen for sound mixing. It happened for picture. It's like it's it's. Like when I think of like the most iconic mo- moments of the Oscars, that's like a top five, if not number one. And, well, yeah, and, and the other ones s- are the streaker, of and course, yes, the Indian, the Native American woman. Oh who, yeah, 
who accepted the Brando Award or Sashin didn't Little Feather? Yes, you yes. Know, everybody's got that. Yeah, I uh, Rob Lowe doing. Uh, oh boy, Howard the Duck or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that one's just kind of embarrassing, though. I guess it all—it's all embarrassing in Rob's the moment. Done but okay, it's, with, he's uh, going to be all right. I think that guy. kid's going to pull through. He's going to be a good guy. Um, okay, so I think you know. Obviously, there's a conversation that could go on at length. But then, why would somebody buy the book? Uh, so the book Magic Time is available. Uh, on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Noble. People can find it. There's an audiobook which you uh, recorded yourself as yes. well, which is great. Um, but yeah, uh, this is always interesting. It's always interesting to hear um, the uh, a perspective out of Hollywood that, frankly, we don't hear much about. And then when a movie portrays it, it's like, yeah, this ruthless son of a bitch over here is just ruining everybody's life. And so to hear from someone who, again, can keep a have a corporate mindset while still having, as you say, like this vision of like what a film should be and someone who genuinely loves movies, which as you said, a lot of executives don't. Yeah. But you know, and it just, I think it, it helps me. It helps. I think the listeners get an idea at the very least of what a producer does. But anyway, so did I tell you, yeah, go on the website, producers guild. Yeah. Yeah. And see all the criteria of what a producer has to do. Yeah, it's uh, it's very uh, very interesting. So, uh, Hawk, thank you so much for being here. This was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Me too, Tyler. I, you're a good interviewer. And oh. <laughs> I love that uh, you love movies. Oh boy! And even if I can't always remember them, but <laughs> anyway, all right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye.